All right, while they're going out, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. You have in your insert, uh, where the reference can be found, page 41 in your, uh, in your pew Bible, if you want to follow along using that. Otherwise, uh, whatever you have for a Bible of your own. Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible, fairly easy to find. And we started out with the uh, story that the Exodus tells. The Exodus, of course, the word Exodus implies what it's about. The removal of the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. Just a little review on that subject. They went into Egypt. Remember the story of Joseph in the Bible. They went into Egypt and were there 400 and some years. 430, we are told in uh, a later place uh, be, uh, that they lived there. And they grew from 70 to a nation. Um, the, um, the exact number of the nation isn't given to us, but uh, later on a census shows that it's fairly large uh, nation of people for that area anyway, probably not for here, not in comparison to nation states today, but uh, they grew into a nation and they were enslaved by the Egyptians. They built pyramids. Um, they were involved in the slavery production of the pyramids and the great monuments, probably sphinxes in Egypt. I don't know the, for sure if they were hand involved with that. Uh, I'm always reminded of this biblical story. Uh, when we have uh, traveled in the south, they have um, occasionally in certain spots, they have these huge plantation mansions. Lost a little bit of the luster for me whenever I had to think about how those plantations got built. Um, the blood, the tears, the family separation, the abuse of the slaves that was heavily involved in making those wonderful mansions and the glorious prosperity of the Deep South up until, of course, 1861. That's how they got there. So pre-Civil War construction projects were, in that part of the world, part of our country, almost exclusively done by slave labor. Uh, some of it not abusive necessarily, but all of it slave labor. And uh, it, for me, always took a little bit of appreciation away from it. So I think of that when I think of the glorious construction of monuments to human glory around the world and the pyramids and the sphinxes would certainly be a part of that. It's the Israelites' blood, sweat, and tears that contributed uh, largely to the building of these that ceased in a certain period of time. Now we're going to pick up on the story of Moses. Moses, as you know, was uh, born into the Israelites but became an Egyptian by adoption for 40 years and then had to escape into the land of Midian and was a shepherd for 40 years. So Moses is not a young guy at this point. Um, 80 uh, years old is not really old necessarily to some people and uh, there are some evidence that longevity could have been different then but nevertheless he was not a young man. He was a mature man with grandkids probably by the time this story takes place. But we're going to pick up on the story in chapter 3, just as some background, starting with verse 1 of chapter 3 on page 41. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mount of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that 
though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, the burning bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now, don't not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt." Let me stop there and make a comment about the expressions that God uses when he communicates with Moses. He often uses, speaks in what can be called anthropomorphisms, meaning God often talks to him as if he were another human, and some of these things you wouldn't normally associate with God. For example, God hearing and taking concern and noticing. Oh, I saw that, God says. Well, okay, he saw it, but if he's really God... He really did know what was going on all the time, right? Uh, So in conversation, you see this quite a bit in the way God relates to the people. I don't think that you um, you could argue very well from a biblical point of view that God didn't notice that until something happened that got his attention because he was busy doing something else or his eyes weren't very good that day or he didn't have his hearing aids in or something along that line. And after all, if he's God, he had an idea what was going on with these people, and these types of anthropomorphic expressions come up in conversation all the time. You do it, too, with children, I'm pretty sure. Uh, You refer to things as if you don't know what's going on, and you talk to them on a level they can appreciate. And when it's conversation, I think that's a good way to look at it. It's actually the only way, accurate way, you can look at it, because in conversation... It's normative. And verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you, that it is I who have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So this is Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given. Horeb, it was called, one name. Sinai is another name for it. Talking about... I pointed this out just briefly last week, but I want to point out again that much of the assurance question uh, in our relationship with God comes after we've taken the step of faith to listen to his voice and do what he says. Do it because it's God and because it's the right thing to do. And then often we get the assurance or the evidence afterwards. That's uh, true of many things in life as well, that uh, you don't often know for sure whether you made a right decision until sometime in the future when you say, oh yeah, I'm glad that I did that. I'm glad I did what was right. Or I'm glad that I followed the Lord in this because it sure turned out a lot better. And uh, verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, God of your fathers has sent me to you. 
And they asked me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now that doesn't seem like a very good name. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't you want a name like Bob or Joe or something like that? That's, a, that's like a more personal name, but this is in fact God's personal name. I think it's worth noting here, and I wanted to draw your attention to an article in uh, your insert here, Competing Views of Gods. This is on the white page here. That foundational principle of the Old Testament teaching, even the historical parts of it, the uh, historical narrative portions is, who are we dealing with? What kind of God? All of the people, all of the societies in that day, probably including the Israelites, were under the impression that there are many gods. And often, each society has its own god. The formal term for that is henotheism, where uh, somebody might believe that each society has its own god. Well, but many societies, pagans and animistic particularly, uh, viewed the whole god question as, uh, as just uh, related to the various spirits that are out there. And somebody might focus more on one than the other. But the basis of God's relationship with the Israelites is that I am not just the God of the Hebrews, which the Egyptians might think, but I am the creator God. I'm the one that goes back to Genesis 1 and the whole creation. And you have the privilege of knowing me and I'm commissioning you to tell other people about me rather than just settle for, oh, let's have our own God. It's not a very effective way to do things, everybody having their own God, for one thing. It creates problems of living with each other. But it also creates problems of, uh, if your God is uh, just a figment of your own imagination, then he's really no more powerful than you are. If your God is limited in time the way you are, if your God is limited in strength the way you are, or knowledge of the future, the past, or your own life, the way you are limited as a human, then whatever God you create out of your mind is going to have some serious problems, and you're going to run into that eventually. The advantage of the actual God, the creator of the universe, the one true God, the great spirit, if you will, uh, the advantage of knowing that God is that he is above all of this. This is created by him, but he is not part of the creation. And that is what God taught the Israelites from day one by giving them his personal name. Now, this is where the term Yahweh comes from. This used to be, if you're looking at an older translation, sometimes it's translated as Jehovah. That's a pronunciation issue. This is the Hebrew personal name for God. There are several other names for God in the Bible, the Old Testament. Yahweh is used the most in the Old Testament, about six and a half thousand times. And Elohim is used about 2,000 times. Elohim is usually the most general name for God, the one that you find in Genesis' first three chapters about God created the heavens and the earth. That's Elohim that's used, but there's no idea here that these are different gods. There are multiple names, El Elyon, uh, Adonai, and El Shaddai. You may be familiar with all these names. These are not different gods. They are hyphenated names to draw attention to how God functions in a particular situation. God Almighty, for example, is used to demonstrate his power. God of the hosts is used to, uh, to, to show how he is the creator God and the ruler of the spirit world. And uh, Yahweh is introduced here 
not for the first time in the Bible because it's used as far back as Genesis 4 in the record, but that's the record. In other words, Moses in writing the record of the historical past uses the personal name for God, but God here introduces himself to his own people. Now, they have known him, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, He mentions this. These are the that got introduced clear back to Abraham. I am the God, that one, that's the one, and now you're going to know him, and I'm going to reveal myself in a more complete way. This is sometimes referred to as progressive revelation in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes things are pitted against other concepts that don't need to be because God revealed himself historically progressively all the way down to Jesus when the Trinity is explained or exposited by Jesus himself Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and that's the first explanation of that that's not a creation of a concept it's an explanation of a concept when the need is there so God essentially says I am who I am or Yahweh sent you or Jehovah, or whatever you want to call it, that doesn't make that much difference to us. To them it would have, because the name was the personal name for God, not the generic. When we pray, we often make this distinction. Jesus taught the disciples to pray, our Father. Now that's a very personal name for God. You can pray God, just address him as God. And he knows who you're talking about. And then Jesus said pray in the name of God of Jesus me my name what do you ask in my name now that's not a formula that doesn't need to be part of the formula but it is the concept the personal name indicates the personal relationship and this is what God is telling them up front I'm doing this exodus for you people because I want to have this personal communication with you not a generic God relationship with you so everything that comes after this is based on the premise that God wants to reveal himself in a more personal nature to his people rather than a generic communication of God and his godness to him. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, now here's where you can read this, we've talked about this before, when you see the word Lord in your translation and it's all uppercase letters, L-O-R-D, capital letters, That is the translator's way of showing that this is that name, Yahweh, uh, as opposed to a lowercase letter Lord, which might be Adonai or some other name which is mentioned. But here, every time you see in your Old Testament capitalized Lord, that's it. All the translations use that technique. If there are some that don't, I don't know about them. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So, go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, Before we get to what he said, I want to draw your attention to this repeated formula. The God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Now, you can shorten that to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which we often do as in English, but in Hebrew it's very specific. It's repeated each time, which means this is rooted in history. This is not a new God, but this is a further revelation and communication from the God that your forefathers knew, but you have gotten away from. You need a reintroduction to this God. Abraham knew him, Isaac knew him, Jacob knew him, but you don't. So here I'm introducing myself again. So he says, uh, let's go back to the beginning of verse 16. Uh, 
Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, once again, the repeat of these names is important to them because these were actually, uh, these were actually nation states or tribes of, in some form of identity that they were going to encounter. The names of the places, geographically and time, uh, sequentially, chronologically, places this in history. And this is fairly easy to follow up as uh, historical fact today, and it was to them, but it gave them an identifying marker of where they were going and what they were going to do. And a land flowing with milk and honey. I had a conversation many years ago when I was a new Christian and with a guy who, uh, who said that every word in the Bible needs to be taken literally. Well, I think the Bible ought to be taken literally, but I prefer the expression literarily. Uh, be, it ought to be taken literally in, in terms that it, the Bible itself is not metaphoric or allegorical. Um, that would be, even from a literature uh, scholar's point of view, a silly way to look at this book because the form does not take that form. But, uh, but literal, every word literal doesn't make any sense either because there are figures of speech. When I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking literally. I expect you to take me literally unless I use a figure of speech. Uh, I'm not just poeticizing. I'm not singing to you. I'm not, uh, I'm not imagining stuff. I'm speaking to you in a didactic way, a teaching way, but I'm also speaking in what would be called the denoted meaning way. Whatever is being said is meant to be taken as literal as it can be taken, and that includes figures of speech. And this is the first time I ever encountered this problem when uh, I asked the guy when he said this to me, uh, what about land flowing with milk and honey? Do, uh, were they going to need boots uh, to walk around Canaan because milk and honey flowing everywhere? I think it's pretty obvious what the figure of speech is. Milk and honey represents what? Flowers, trees, blossoms, that's honey, and milk, productive, grass, animals, whatever you need is going to be there. It's going to be a productive land. And a land flowing with milk and honey is sometimes the way the Willamette Valley in Oregon is described. Flowing with milk and honey. But I haven't stepped in any honey or, uh, or any milk uh, or anything, but I know that it's a very productive place. It's green. It's productive. Probably the most productive valley in the world, actually, the Willamette Valley. Uh, a certain microclimate that makes that possible. But uh, that's the figure of speech he uses. A great land. I'm taking you from this dry, old, hot Egypt where you're a slave, and I'm going to bring you to a glorious spot where stuff grows and things are provided for you from nature itself. In verse 18, so the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders, and I will perform among them, that I will perform among them, and after that he will let you go. 
Now, I think that God is using a form of speech here that isn't very considered very good evangelistic technique by many people. You're supposed to fudge how difficult this is going to be. You're supposed to make it sound like it's all going to be just um, hunky-dory and you're going to be happy all the time. And I think I have encountered many people in my life and ministry who have tried Jesus based on the promise that they have been told, they have been promised, that all is going to go good from now on. You know, all the sins are going to be gone, the despair, the depression is going to be gone, the addictions, whatever it is going to be gone, because Jesus is going to take that all away from you, which is true. But God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament was consistent on this point. This is not a promise of easy street. I'm not offering you a life of just fun and games and happy-go-lucky and joy, joy, joy and everybody grin and ignore life and its problems because it's not going to happen that way. But you get the privilege of suffering for a good thing. You get the privilege of living a life of pain and suffering, which all life in the physical world is a life of pain and suffering, but for good cause and for the ultimate promise of victory and release and joy. The joy, though, that is not happiness that comes from drugs or giggle fests on television or whatever it is people find their artificial joy from. It's the happiness, it's the joy that supersedes that shallow happiness into something meaningful, a purposeful life. And this is what he's telling them. But you're going to know. This isn't going to be easy. This deliverance, this exodus is going to be tough. And you know, if you know the story, if you've read ahead and cheated and read ahead in the book, you know that many times they were tempted to turn back. Say, this is too hard. This isn't, I want to go back to the old addictions and all these other things. That was a lot more fun. And I could just drown my sorrows. And Oh, but you forgot the pain and the misery that went with it. And God is warning them that this is not going to be easy. The Pharaoh and the powers that be, the world around them, and the physical world around them is not going to be an easy process. Be prepared for that, but it will be a purposeful process. So he says in verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders and I will perform that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. In case you wondered where that expression came from, plundering the Egyptians. I think it's a pretty abused expression many times. Many Christians feel like it's their right to just rip off the government or their neighbors or anybody else because we're plundering Egyptians. I don't think God has any kind of meaning of that in there. Number one, the church is not a nation state. Our mission is not to establish a nation, conquer people around us, and grab their stuff. Israel was a nation state, a theocratic kingdom. That was part of God's plan. But God was the one who said they will voluntarily give this to you and you will prosper because I want you to prosper. That's the promise in this. I want you to prosper and I will make sure the people around you prosper you. And we can take that as a promise that God will provide for us, but our mission is not the kind of mission that the Israelites had as a theocratic kingdom or a nation state.
Now I want to draw your attention as takeaways for life, some principles that we can take from this passage that apply to us on a, in a personal way. Number one, being a student of God is not just for theologians and scholars. It simply shows respect and love. I think that this has uh, fallen into ill repute, the whole idea of studying God or theology, and I think sadly so. Uh, no brain engaged here. Just... Uh, and it's possible that some people grew up or in past generations there was too much interest in doctrinal issues or theological concepts. So all we want now is some experience and some good time, some happy, 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 and make me feel good, and I will go away happy, and that's all I want out of life. And I say, stay home and watch your stupid TV. All that happy, happy, shallow is all there. It's easy to get. If we're not interested in God, the person, you're not really in love with God. If you suggest to me that you love your wife, but you don't really want to know anything about her, you don't want to get to know her, because boy, once you get to know her, or she gets to know you, then you find out stuff you don't really like. So just keep it up. No, 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 let's not talk. Let's just eat and whatever else you do, let's not talk. Don't, don't get to know me. Because if you do, you won't like me. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe you should have do that before you got married. And children? Children are students of their parents. The best uh, psychologists in the world are children. They study their parents. That's where they're learning how to relate to people. That's where they're learning the values of life. That's where they're learning things. They may not put it that way. And I think it's a good idea for Christians of all ages to be theologians. That just means a student of God, a studier of God. And, you know, sometimes we just want to get down to the practical. Oh, I don't talk about all this stuff. Let's just get down to the practical. Just give me three rules for more success in my business or three rules for more success in my body or whatever. That's all I want. Then you're not one of us as far as a follower of Jesus because the genuine lovers of God want to know God. They want to know who he is. And whenever somebody says, oh, keep all that theology stuff out of there, they're not interested in God. They're just interested in goodies. Give me some stuff. Give me some blessing. Give me some promises. Give me some good stuff. Not the way God revealed himself to the Israelites, and it's not the way Jesus revealed himself to his followers. Never once do you get the impression that he didn't want them to engage their brains. Oh, just give me your heart. Or just give me your busy, busy, but not your brain. I don't want that. The fact is, what you think of God in your mind is ultimately how you will live. And number two, we tend to forget the lessons about God and from history. It's called gravity. I just drew your attention to how God kept repeating, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you guys don't even know him anymore. The Israelites, as you can see from subsequent history here, had very much bought into the paganism or the eclectic spirituality of the people they lived with. The ten plagues are all addressed to Egyptian gods. And we're going to see that as we look at this story later on. But the Israelites themselves had to have that educated into them that there is a creator God. There's one true God. Just because the world around you doesn't like to hear you say that 
doesn't mean it's true that, oh, everything, however, it's all going the same place anyway. Boy, all going the same place anyway. Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, you know anything about them? The concepts aren't even closely related about who God is. So knowing God is a matter of finding truth. Well, whose truth? Uh, whose truth? It's either true. Two plus two equal, either equals four or it does not. Well, who says? I want it to equal 4.7. So I get my truth and you get your truth. Well, good luck with that. That's kind of fun, but it is a little childish and shallow. There's truth and there's God. Now, many people have claimed to know God who don't. Many people are mistaken about their understanding and we are mistaken about our understanding too but there is still truth to be found and God the creator and final judge to be known number three just be honest with God he can take it Moses uh, doubts and fears about this calling I think are a good sign one of the reasons God was able to use him now what if they won't believe me and well they probably won't. I'm going to have to figure out ways to convince them. And you might not be the one who actually does it. But God told him, I will do it. But Moses was honest in his doubts, in his fears, his interaction with God. That's a good thing. Just go ahead and be that way because God knows what you think anyway. Number four, arguing with God might be good for clarification, but don't forget who's the boss. And number five, what excuses have you've been made. God called Moses to serve him and he promised to do the job for him on a macro level the spiritual plane and uh, yet Moses still had his doubts. Next week we're going to look at how this um, debate this argument with God ended with Moses but I think it's important for us to think once in a while about are we really interested in God or are we using God to increase our profits, to increase our emotional status, improve our emotional status, or to fit in, or whatever it might be. Are we just using God for that purpose? God is not even remotely interested in relationships like that. He revealed himself to Moses in a way that was a bit scary. But it should be scary, because this is God, the God of the universe. So what's holding you back from going all in? with this God he has a plan he has a plan for his people he has a plan for you so the question is is something holding you back during this closing song give it up to God and let him show himself powerful and real to you whatever it is